I know Peyton took all the blame for the, the schedule thing, and uh, I'm good with that. No, I, uh, we, we both looked at it. We both looked at it, and because uh, we do that every week, and we just go back, and we just kind of take a look at, you know, what, at the bulletin, make sure everything's supposed to be right, um, which technically that's not my fault, because y'all know me already, right? Because you know I don't have the capacity of seeing these things. So, yeah, let's just blame it on Peyton. It works. That works. Used to be we always blamed it on David Paladin. Uh, but now I guess it's Peyton. He's, he's the new fall guy. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is going to be our text uh, for this morning. You know, the devil, he, he tries to destroy the work of God in whatever ways possible. And, and one of the ways that we often don't even think about is how he tries to destroy God's work within and amongst his own people. And, and, and even people who are, who are the most zealous, it seems, that are most zealous for the advancement of Jesus and the kingdom. They can be the very ones who are, are bringing down what God's work is all about. And you say, well, well, how could that be? It's spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is a real thing. And that destruction is, is an ugly thing. And it can make you believe that you've got all the answers. It can, it can make you uh, feel like you're superior to others. It can, it can make you feel like that there's not anywhere else that you can grow spiritually in knowledge or in anything else, but you've already got it all figured out. And that's a spiritual pride. Our text this morning in, in, the, in the book of Mark chapter 9, it is a series of themes. And it looks like in the beginning, if you just kind of read it all, from, chap from verse 30 all the way to verse 50, it just seems like, well, there's a bunch of little stories here, a bunch of narratives. And, but you soon learn that this, is that me? That is me. That's okay. Not better? All right. See, I told you, Satan's trying to destroy. <laughs> he, he's doing his best. So our text, it looks like these, these things are not connected, but, but then we find out they really are. And, and it's all about how we treat each other. Folks, we, listen, Jesus gives these things, and he's giving them as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's giving them because he knew that his disciples from all generations are going to struggle with this. He knew it. Th that's why he gives these things. And as a result, we're going to fail we're going to fail at being a community of believers in Jesus. We're going to hurt each other. And Jesus wants us to take that very seriously. In fact, deadly serious. Even though we have this human nature about us, he wants us to take what we're about to say with just deadly seriously. 
And all of these images are going to bring it all together. So let's, let's just get started, and let's look at verse 30. They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the sayings and were afraid to ask. This is the second prediction that Jesus makes. There's three predictions in the Gospel of John, I mean, Gospel of Mark. And all three, and this is the second of the three, and they're all saying the same thing that the Son of Man, he is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to raise on the third day. And, and we look at this and we say, yeah, I mean, can it be any more evident? But what does it say? It says they didn't get it. And they were afraid to ask. And maybe it's after the first prediction, if you remember Peter. But, but they're kind of like mannequin man at this particular point. But it's setting up this whole thing. Jesus is the humble, suffering servant of Jesus. I mean, the suffering servant of God. He is going to die for people who do not deserve to be died for. But he's going to do this for all of humanity. This is sets up for whatever comes next. So verse 33. Okay, so Jesus just tells this, this thing that's happening. And he says, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Good idea. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And what, what they've just shown here is that they didn't get it. They didn't get what Jesus just said here. That, that this is what the path of the cross is all about. And they understood it as something as, this is, they're jockeying for position, folks. You see this. Because, you know, they've got this, you know, conquering Messiah, they believe, that is with them. And they, so they're trying to find their position in all of this. And, and so here's Jesus, and he's just talking to them, and he is going to surrender his life. And they are talking about fulfilling their life. And while Jesus is sitting here, and he's counting the cost of what it means to be in this mission, they are sitting there counting, you know, the greatness that they can have. Do you see this? And so they're not looking to be servants. What are they looking for? They're looking for people that are going to serve them. So they're people that they're going to lord over. And so Jesus calls his child to him. And, and, and he takes his child in their arms. And when you read that, do you just go, oh, that's a Kodak moment. Now, you kids, Kodak is this old kind of photography thing, uh, and you couldn't do it on your phone. But, but today we would say, oh, we'd take a pic this, we want pictures, and it would, listen, it would be all over social media. Somebody did that, their child's up there, and everybody, look at this, Jesus took this child in their arms. That's not how they saw children. 
That's not how they saw children in that culture. And that's why it's important to understand culture in order to understand what he's talking about here. These were people who had no power. They had no status. They had no value. They had no rights. They were dependent. They were vulnerable. We're not being called to be like children here. We are called to to take those who are vulnerable, to take those who are insignificant in, our, in society, and we are to bring them into our arms. This, this is, it's a humble servant, is what he's saying. Well, well, who are those people? These are people who are poor. They're widows. They're people who are lonely. At your schools, it's, it's the kids that are sitting by themselves. And, and, and in, in the church, it may be somebody who, who's, they're, they're, they're searching for something, and, and they have to sit by themselves. And they don't know anybody, while we're, we're all in our own little groups. And Jesus says it's the small and the powerless that God appears to in the world. He says something in, in the Gospel of Matthew that is just so astounding and mind-blowing. There he says, look, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And if you know about it, then you're like, well, when did we do this, Jesus? We don't remember you. And he says, look, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to the least of these, you do it to me. And then he reversed it to those who do not do to the least of these. It's easy to see their arrogance, isn't it? It's easy to see them, and they're, you know, they're arguing over the greatest, but we need to look at ourselves here, don't we? And sometimes it's hard to see ourselves. We'd just much rather see the people in the text. But over the years, I can tell you, spiritual pride has been a real issue in churches. And I've, I've, I've done this for 27 years. I've served in several churches. I, I've visited places and things. And I can tell you, I can tell you about an elder who manipulated the other elders manipulated the church in order to get what they wanted. I I've, can witness members who, you know, threatened, if you don't do this my way, then I'm going to leave. And some did and some didn't, and it was an idle threat, and some it wasn't. I I've seen, uh, you know, uh, I've, had, I've ha actually had someone tell me before that we don't need to be baptizing so many poor people. We need to baptize more, more people of influence. That, that's really, we need, to, we need more of that. And, and, and listen, we, we get into this. And churches as a whole, we get into this. And, and we're sitting here and we can look at ourselves. And, and, and some churches, they have this spiritual pride because they're the biggest church in the city. And some of us, we have our pride because we're jealous of the biggest church in the city. And all of it has to do with how I view myself. And all of it has to do with my high opinion of myself. Many are not even aware, which is why these stories are here, why we're meant to stop and we're to reflect on them. And we're not to sit here and look at everybody else in the church. We're to look at ourselves and to ask ourselves, have I been that person who's wanted the place of honor and recognition? Am I that person that's not happy because I don't get my way? Let's keep going got to get better right <laughs> oh it does not the way you might hope so verse 38 john said to him 
Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon to afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus just embarrasses them over this discussion they're having over who's the greatest. And John feels like, you know, this might be a good time to tell about how I saw this guy and we were out and we saw this guy, he was trying to cast out demons and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. He's not following us. Did you see the us, right? He didn't say because he's not following Jesus. No, he's casting out demons in their name. Do you see the irony? Do you see the irony from what happened last week? You remember last week? Here at the, the bottom of the mount of transfiguration. What is the whole chaos? What is all this argument about? Because the disciples could not cast out a demon. And yet here John is saying, here's this guy who's having success, and we're telling him he needs to stop because he's not one of us. Because he's not in my circle. Because he's not in my group. Because he doesn't bear the same name that I bear out here. Folks, it's an elitist attitude. Whoever this man was, he's casting out evil spirits in the name of Jesus. Our fellowship has really struggled with this. I don't think, you know, if you grew up going to churches of Christ, I don't think this is like a revolutionary thing that I'm giving you here. But here, I'm going to tell you something else. We're not the only ones. Read, you, read a history book. Go look at the Renaissance. Look at the Reformation. Go to the, the English Puritans. Go to the New England Puritans. These are people who came over to America for our religious freedoms. And they believed they had it all figured out. John Cotton. I wish we'd go back to Whigs. But anyway, John Cotton, I don't know, that looks hot though. So he said, listen to this, he said, he wrote, he said, they were as close as could be to what the Lord Jesus would erect were he here himself. Folks, they were convinced that they understood the will of God on every important matter. And guess what? There's, there's splits that come off of it and come off of it and come off of it. And you know what? They were all, every one of them, they're all saying this. We finally have restored the first century church and we believe in the Bible only. You don't believe me? Go look. Read it. It's there. It's in your history book. Go backwards and forwards. Do you know in the 17th century there were wars between Protestants and Catholics in Europe? Wars. They're taking up arms. Both sides are taking up arms in the name of Jesus against one another. And I'd love to tell you this elitist attitude is, is ended long ago, but it hasn't. Believers and Christian groups still struggle thinking that they are the only ones who have this whole thing figured out. And they judge everybody else. What did Jesus tell John? 
do not stop him. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. Listen to the second half. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. You hear that? You hear that? Even if they, they don't, they're not in full agreement with us on every particular matter, what does he say if they say Jesus is Lord? Here's something I found, and I've discovered. And I listen, this is me over the years, okay? This is the struggle I've had over the years. I have found that God is much more inclusive than his followers. Let me tell you, that didn't start here. Go all the way back to the book of Numbers. Remember going through the book of Numbers? Children of Israel, they're always complaining about something. And on this one occasion, they are sick and tired of all this, you know, the manna that's being rained down from heaven. And, and this, you know, this is keeping them alive, folks. You know that. It's a, it's a miracle. And it's keeping them alive in a, in a wilderness. And yet they say, we want meat. And Moses is just worn down. I can't even imagine. And so the Lord says, listen, I want you to take the 70 elders of, of Israel and I want you to go to the tent of meeting. Take them to the tent of meeting. This is the place where Moses would go to meet God. And, and, and Yahweh would take a portion of the Holy Spirit that was on Moses and he puts it on the 70 elders. It was fantastic. You ought to read it. It's fantastic. They all begin prophesying. They're just, they're just prophesying. Well, come to find out, the spirit evidently jumps or what, I don't know what happened, but there's two men down in the camp, and they're prophesying too. They got it. They're not one of the 70, and, and the word comes back, and Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, says, Lord, these two guys down in the camp, they're doing this. Make them stop. Does that sound familiar? Here's what Moses said. I love this. Was it all? Of the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them Jesus wishes all of us were battling evil casting out Satan in the name of Jesus they are in a life and death struggle against the deceiver he is prepared to accept any ally who is ready to go to battle. The enemy that we are engaged in is not each other or other people who may disagree with us. And it doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that they agreed with biblically and everything else. But they are followers of Jesus and they're doing their best. And, and, and they proclaim the name of Jesus. And they're out there and they're trying to make a difference. Satan is the enemy. It's not, it's not each other. You understand that? And we've, we've fought so long, we forgot who the enemy is. Did you know in 1265 to 66, the Mongol Empire had grown. Oops, sorry. And it had grown all the way from the Black Sea all the way out here to the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it was a powerful, powerful empire. And at the time, Kublai Khan, he contacts Marco Polo. And he says, I want you to get with 
the, the Christian church in Rome, and I want you to have them send a hundred men to come into my court and tell us about Christianity. Did you know it was 28 years before one man, not even a hundred, but one man finally made it to the courts because the churches were in such chaos in fighting with one another. And by the time they got there, Kublai Khan said, it is too late, I have grown old in my idolatry. Folks, the real enemy is Satan. We cannot limit the power of God to those who only do things our way. To those who only have the same sign on the highway. We live very safe lives. We're seeing this, this persecution that's begun with Christianity. We're seeing it. We talk about it in here. But none of us are threatened with our lives, and for the most part, we're really not, mainly, we're not threatened with, you know, our jobs and homes and things of that sort. The people that, that Mark is writing are people who are under severe persecution in Rome. And I sometimes wonder, if we were under severe persecution in this city, that just by, just by saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that I would be under such, such persecution, I wonder what we, feel, we would feel about people who don't have all of the thoughts and the beliefs that we have, but they believe in Jesus, and they're willing to die for him. I wonder, I wonder if we would change how we thought about people. Keep going. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus lets them know they needed to be worried more about the evil from within themselves than those who are outside. This is coming right off of what John said. And he's saying, you need to be very concerned. And you need to be concerned about causing one of my little ones. And he's not talking about little children in the church. He's talking about those who are followers. They're disciples of Jesus. And he refers to them as little children. And is it any wonder why he refers to us as little children? Because we act like children. And we look at children and we say, well, children are so sweet and innocent. Do you remember the playground growing up? That's brutal. Kidding me? If you weren't in the group, you know, and there's groups for everything. Groups that like to play sports while they're out there. Groups that wanted to play, you know, uh, you know King of the Mountain or whatever it may be. And if you were different or you were the new kid in school... It could be a very hard place. I remember in elementary school, and I tell you this, not out of any single bit of pride, but out of shame. There was, there was a kid, his name was Greg, and he had a problem, and it, and it caused him to slobber, and it caused him to, to speak differently, and we called him Smeg. And, and we made fun of him a lot, even to the point that, you know, mama came down to school. 
because in that environment, we can be very brutal. Jesus knew we're going to be brutal to each other. He knew that. And we know that bullying is an issue in our world. But do you see what he says? It would be better for you that a heavy stone is tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea and drowned than for you to cause one of my ones who have a simple faith or maybe a new faith and you cause them to fall away. Do you know someone? Maybe you are the someone. That you hurt another Christian so badly that they became disillusioned about Jesus or disillusioned about the church. Did you know there's a website for Churches of Christ for people who've left and, and people who have gone through all kinds of abuse? And they talk, and it doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything, but, but how people handled them. And we're not the only ones. I'm not trying to be that way. Jesus knows this kind of thing is going to happen, and that's why he gives such a stern warning that you would rather be drowned in the sea by a heavy stone than for me to know that you've caused one of my little ones to fall away because of the way I tr you treated them. Keep going. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Ha! Makes sense, right? It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. We have saws in the foyer. It's better for you to enter life lame than it is for two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hmm. Did Jesus really say that? Let's see, what we got? We got uh, lopping off body parts poking out, eyes, um, cast into hell. That about does it, right? I, I don't think God's asking us to start just cutting things off here. I, I don't think that's what this is about at all. Uh, I, first of all, it's not going to stop people from sinning. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, did it get your attention? Did that get your attention? When you read that, do you go, oh, do you sit up and you like, you're going to read it a little? That's the intent. That's the intent. And usually when, when we read this, there's, there's really two schools of thought or th two, you know, things that people come out of this. One is that Jesus is cruel. Jesus is controlling. And the other one is they try to soften what Jesus said. And they say, we know this is a hyperbole. So instead of, you know, poking out your eye, just turn your TV off. And I don't think that's right either. We're meant to be shocked by this. We're meant to see the seriousness of what he's talking about. 
he uses scandalous imagery to alert his disciples. Now, for the Jews, the, the hand, the eyes, the hands, and the feet, they were, they were metaphorical. So the eyes meant, you know, what you see, how you see people. We're putting it in this context of this flow that's happening. How you see other people, and then the hands is how you treat them. It's, it's how, what you do. How do you treat those in, based on how you see them? And then the feet has to do with your path. What are your habits? How, how are you treating people? Why do we gossip about people in the church? And we just, we don't mind hurting them. Because it's how we perceive them. It, it's how we, we act on that perception. And, and we, this is what we do. It's our feet. And why, why do we look down on people that may not be as, as significant as we think that they are? Because of how we see them. Because of, because of how we do. And because it's become a habit in our lives. And do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that woe to us if we allow these patterns to continue. Now, we think of hell as something that's in the future. And how we see it, we see it's something that's coming. The Jews saw it as something that's, that's here, too. They saw it in the reality. It's actually, it's a real place. Did you know you can go visit hell today? It's, it's the Gehenna. It's the Hinnon Valley. It's right there. And it's got, it's got a very dark history. You go way back. You go back into the Old Testament. And, and, and during the time of the divided kingdom, and they were offering up the, these innocent babies and children, and they were having them sacrificed to this false god, Molech. God gets so angry about this. He says, your punishment's coming, and it's going to be poetic justice. You read Jeremiah chapter 19. You'll see it for yourselves. And he's saying that you will be thrown into the very place, the very fires, where you have burned the innocents. And what he's showing us here, and we talked about this in class, we had more time to really, to, to really unpack this a little bit more, is the reality of the Valley of Hinnom. It is a dark memory for Israel for the way they treated the innocent. Jesus says, for you to cause one of my little ones to fall. He says, I come to their rescue. Folks, that's what hell is. Hell is justice. That's what it is. And he's always the insignificant, the people who are downtrodden, the people who are considered of low esteem. He says, if you treat them badly, if you treat my own children badly, he says, I'm going to take you to court. And it's a divine court. We're supposed to see this. We're supposed to see the seriousness. Okay, let's, let's finish this up. Verses 49 and 50 says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace 
with everyone. Now, this only appears in the Gospel of Mark. It's really interesting. We talked about this in class, and we talked about how it's used, this, this idea of salt and fire. It is used in other contexts, in other settings, in Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Uh, but it's like, well, what does this mean? And I've always taught this to mean it, it's something that preserves. It's something that, you know, um, you know that purifies. I, I, I don't think that's the case. I may be wrong, but I think this has to do with, with sacrifice, the sacrificial system. And, and because there is the sacrifice and with fire, and, and, a, and the burnt offering was to be completely consumed, completely consumed for it to be pleasing God. If it's not consumed, it's not pleasing to God. And every sacrifice was to be salted. It's all a part of that sacrificial system. And all of this is to show that we have got to give ourselves completely to God to be pleasing to him. If we're going to do what God has asked us to do and how we treat one another, we've got to stop sacrificing others and be a sacrifice ourselves. If you're going to do the Lord's Supper, you can go on out. We're getting ready to partake of the bread. As we prepare to partake the bread, we need to focus on what this moment represents to us as a community of believers. The bread symbolizes the life that Jesus gave for humanity. And if we reflect on his sacrifice, as he does here in the beginning part of our text tonight, this morning, and what he was willing to do for us, all feelings that we have of self-importance and spiritual pride, it should be removed at this moment, if we're doing this right. What in this moment can we boast in? You're going to boast on your goodness? Do you want to boast in your, your spiritual perfection? You want to boast in in your spiritual knowledge. You may even feel guilt, shame during this moment because you know how you've been this past week or ever how long it's been. And here you are and you're, you're face to face with Jesus and the sacrifice he's made for us and all you have done and me is we think of ourselves And together we partake this bread. It's a community. Have we reached perfection here? Everybody sharing Jesus? Do we treat everybody exactly the way the love of God wants us to? Have we had a bad thought at all towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? We got this thing figured out? And yet this moment is not for us to wallow in our guilt and self-pity. It's to bring us to a proper understanding of ourselves to Jesus. But at the same time, we realize the bread that we're about to partake 
it also represent, represents the life that was sacrificed for our failures, for our sinfulness. The bread and the cup help us to surrender our lives to the King. The kingdom of God is ours, but it's not because of our goodness. It's because of His. And as we join together as a community of people right now, this is what we are called to do together as a people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this, this morning and we thank you for the life of your son. Father, we are, are just so flawed. We fail. And we try, Father, we do. And there's others we can look at and we know that maybe they're further along than we are in our spiritual growth and understanding of things. But Father, we, none of us have reached it. But we thank you, Father, for the one who did and for sending your son. And how in this very moment together we acknowledge you and we come to you in thanks as we take a serious look at ourselves next to the one who died for us. Thank you, Father, for this bread. In Christ's name, amen.